Walter Balper, the Timon of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Baseball's postseason, naturally. We begin by discussing an issue that is already irrelevant and simultaneously universal. The Red Sox decision to start Clay Buckholtz for Game 3 of their division series against the Cleveland Indians. It's a decision that Boston made in no small part, it would seem, due to the late season success Clay Buckholtz had at preventing runs. One which some might argue is the product of a change in his pitch mix. Cameron suggests the adjustment is irrelevant or largely irrelevant, but certainly not to a degree of magnitude that negates all of the clay buckles that occurred before it. What, I asked Dave Cameron, what sort of adjustment would represent a new level of talent as opposed merely to a brief run of success? That occupies us for some time, but naturally it does not prevent Dave Cameron from advancing his communist plans about sliding and the slide rule with the advent of instant replay in baseball, runners who leave the bag for even a fraction of a second if the tag is being applied are ruled out. Dave Cameron thinks that should change. It's not in the spirit of the rule, and he will not relent on the point. He does have some use, however, like, for example, reminding the host of this program how often that host is going to look like an idiot. One out of three times, you're going to look like an idiot. More aspersions like that, and also that precise aspersion and what's to follow. What's following most immediately, however, a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Would it be fair to characterize life as a thing beset by work and hassle? Naturally, naturally it is. What does not need to be beset by work and hassle, however, is the ticket buying experience thanks to SeatGeek. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets that are available on all other sites into one place to aggregate them, as it were, so that a customer never misses a deal. What they do as well is to assess every ticket a grade based on value. So like an early 21st century GM, it is possible to exploit inefficiencies in the market. And best of all, SeatGeek. SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, unlike StubHub, they never assess fees or mysterious fees at any point from the beginning to the end of the transaction. And for enduring this message, listeners get a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. You download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today. Or your nearest possible convenience with which utterance. All that's left to say is this. What is it? It's FANGRAPHS. How do you, who does it feature? Managing Editor Dave Cameron, and when does it begin? Right now. Okay, and where is your pa- what pattern are you using? The figure eight. Yeah, go to the one that looks like a weird heart butt. You see that one, the heart butt? Yeah, it just took a while to move it. Yeah, it's a little sticky, isn't it? Yeah. How's that? Say that the heart butt is sticky, Dave. No. Okay. No, it's, uh, it's a little better. I think it'll probably be okay. Okay. I mean, yeah, this is the best I can do today. Yeah, that's the best you can do. We'll have to deal with that. Dave, let me ask you this question. Um, <clears throat> because, well, 
people are going to be listening to this after the conclusion of the Red Sox uh, game, the Red Sox game against Cleveland. Okay. Okay. Uh, which ga- for which game Clay Buckles is uh, scheduled to start. And uh, we've uh, we've recently just had two posts go up in very short order regarding Clay Buckholtz. Yours, the latter one, which suggests that Buckholtz should have a short leash, uh, which comes very much in the heels of Eno Saris's post regarding some adjustments, some adjustments in terms of pitch mix specifically that Clay Buckholtz appears to have made uh, since the end of July during which time he has also had more success, whether it's sustainable success is another question, but he's definitely had more success against uh, everyone in left-handers in particular. Do you agree with all this, this, this premise? Yeah, there wasn't really a question in there. I was, I was waiting for you to ask one. No, I'm pausing just to see if you're with me. Yeah, I'm here listening to you have a monologue. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have to set up the premise. Here's the question. You, here's the point. You posit that whatever improvements Buckholz has exhibited over the last two, two, three months, something like that. Six that weeks. it, huh? Six weeks. Sure, six weeks. That it's uh, that relative to his, if you look at the rest of his career, right? Uh, that, that that this is a fairly short amount of time, and if even if there are adjustments, then uh, one still needs to evaluate Clay Buckholz in the context of Clay Buckholz. Here's my question, however. Are there any adjustments a pitcher could make in which we could measure objectively where you would say we should throw the projection out of the window? This adjustment, um, this adjustment uh, makes all of the, the resume up to this point, makes that all that sample moot and irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, I think we actually saw that in the second half of the year, in the last month of the year with the, in Boston last year. So I think the Red Sox saw exactly that with Rich Hill, where they – Signed him to a minor league contract out of the independent leagues. He went to the minors. They called him up because they just needed an extra starter in September. And he put together four starts of like Clayton Kershaw level success. He was like the best pitcher in baseball in September of last year. And then this year, Clayton Richel has continued to be very good and is now the number two starter behind Clayton Kershaw in Los Angeles. Uh, and I think that's an indication where you say, look, it looks like Richel is doing something and is certainly performing at a level that is unprecedented relative to what he's been before. This is not a minor change. This is a dramatic wholesale uh, reinvention of who he was before. We've seen that some with, uh, like, Daniel Murphy last season, right? Like, second half, Daniel Murphy learned to pull the ball, and he learned to elevate and started hitting for real power for the first time in his career. And this year, Daniel Murphy was one of the best hitters in baseball. So there are times where you can make significant adjustments and changes, and it can be sustainable, or at least uh, an indicator of an improved talent level. I think with a guy like Clay Buckholz, what we're seeing is like uh, marginal changes that lead to uh, a little bit of improvement. Like, it's not that Clay Buckholz couldn't get any better, but, you know, getting a little bit better from atrocious still does not make you capable of pitching in an elimination wild card or in an elimination playoff game. What's it? Let me ask you about Rich Hill. What is it that Rich Hill exhibited – Last year in those first uh, in those four starts that he hadn't previously in his career. So I think probably the main thing is that Rich Hill basically just decided to throw his curveball all the time. So Rich Hill's always had a good curveball. It was when he was coming up through the Cubs system, it was rated one of the best curveballs in, in their system. He was a top pitching prospect at the time because of that curveball. Uh, but I think like the traditional notion is that you can only throw your off speed stuff twenty thirty percent of the time. You kind of have to live off your fastball. 
Um, and Rich Hill's fastball is not that good. It's a, you know, a mediocre forcing fastball, uh, that he pitches at the top of the zone and can be homer prone with. And, uh, after some adjustments and potentially, uh, from what we've heard working with Brian Bannister, who's, um, kind of a, a former pitcher who also really likes data and was looking at Rich Hill's spin rate on his curve and basically said, look, let's watch tape of Clayton Kershaw. This guy throws a curveball all the time because his curveball is amazing. You should do that too. And Rich Hill was like, okay, fine. I'm just going to throw my curveball like half the time. And then, and now it turns out doing that actually pretty effective. Right. And, uh, you, you have to think that, that Rich Hill, as opposed to certain other pitchers, might be, um, certainly at that point last year, might be more receptive to, uh, to un, uh, to non-traditional methods because he was what? He was 35, right? 36, I think. Yeah, yeah. And well, he's certainly 36 now. I'm saying last year around this time, he was well, in his was, age 35 I season. I think he was 35. Anyway. Sure. And, he's old. and so he said, what do I have to lose? He's in his mid-30s. That's the yeah. point. What do, what do I have to lose is probably what Rich Hill is saying. Yeah, I think at that point he was definitely open to experimenting, uh, especially because I think, you know, he was a couple months earlier, he was in the indie leagues. He wasn't even in organized professional baseball. Right. And now you mentioned Daniel Murphy on the hitting side. What is something um, – so, so we have a hitting and pitching example uh, of players who – um, made who, who produced in different ways than they had previously, and whose whose uh, improved production could be um, could be tied to actual mechanical differences, or if not mechanical, then at least uh, process related differences. What is something that someone like Clay Buckholtz, right? What's what's something they could change about Clay Buckholtz where you would say, oh, what he's done over the last six weeks actually does represent a new level of talent. What's something that you could pick up, for example, by way of pitch effects or stat cast, um, or uh, just by observation? Well, I think he could throw a new pitch or he could throw significantly harder, or he could dramatically change the types of pitches he throws to certain hitters. And that's, I think what Eno Saros is arguing a little bit is like, Hey, look, he's got this new pitch against left-handers. This really helps him. Except for when you kind of have these changes, you have to look at the magnitude of the change, right? So like, okay, now Clay Buckholz throws a four-seam against left-handers up in the zone. He hadn't done that previously. That's nice. How much did that actually help him? And then we actually look at, like, this very arbitrary 10-appearance window that people are referring to where he had a 2.86 ERA down the stretch, and you're like, oh, his strikeout rate went from 15% to 18%, and his walk rate went from 10% to 8%. Those are marginal gains at best, right? So, like, it is not clear that just adding a four-seam fastball against left-handers up in the zone has significantly changed what Clay Buchholz is in terms of controlling the strike zone. And we see the big difference in his success is basically just, you know, keeping fly balls in the yard. His home run rate was basically cut in half. And I think we know historically that that's not a thing that pitchers have a great deal of control over, especially in large samples. And Clay Buchholz personally doesn't have a great deal of control over this. He's not one of these guys who's you know, sustainably, like Matt Cain for years and years and years, run really low home run rates. So when we look at, like, uh, small changes, it looks like the effect of Buckholz's adjustment uh, just didn't really make him all that different. Right, okay. And, um, and I assume if he were to throw, like, five miles per hour harder, that would also be a relevant change for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think, like, sticking with the Boston case, like, we see, like, Joe Kelly, right? Like, Joe Kelly went to the bullpen, 
has been not a very good starter during his couple of years in Boston. But during September, uh, after he came up from the minor leagues where he worked in relief, Joe Kelly was amazing. And so I, I wrote about this last week. of like, Joe Kelly looks to be one of these guys who um, potentially could be a very good reliever, even though he's a failed starting pitcher. There are a lot of those. I think we can look at Joe Kelly as a reliever and not necessarily judge him based on what Joe Kelly was as a starter. And that's one of the reasons I think, like, if you're John Farrell and you have Joe Kelly down at the bullpen and you have Clay Buckholz struggling on the mound, you should put Joe Kelly in. You know, uh, this is uh, relevant to very little of – well, no, it's actually relevant to what you said. It's not relevant to baseball um, on, on this particular October day. But I was uh, – I had the occasion to examine Tyler Thornburg's numbers today. Yeah. And in Tyler Thornburg – I guess not much different than what you were saying with, with regard to Joe Kelly, just an example of a younger player. Uh, he was a relatively high draft pick who did not do much at all as a starter in the minor leagues or, um, well, if he's made any starts as a major leaguer. Yeah, but he's made some. Yeah, but he was fantastic this year. Yeah, he was really good. Yeah, he was really good. Use him. That's <laughs> that's insight is what that is. Yeah. Um, the, here's another question. I, you, we, we talk about a, a sort of minor adjustment that Buckholz has made, maybe introducing the four-seamer more, uh, maybe uh, throwing the two-seamer both, um, or you know, throwing it inside more often to, to left-handers um, so they're not always leaning out over the plate. Some of what we see, correct me if I'm wrong, some of what we see in a player, even a player who, say, produces the exact, the exact, exact numbers uh, in one year, and then in the next, those that exact performance, that duplication of the performance might actually be the product of a number of adjustments because players, I think, to some degree, uh, they have to adjust in order to stay the same. Does that does that seem right? Is that true of all players, more some than others? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe not every player. I mean, I think like Giancarlo Stanton probably is making huge adjustments. He's just like, I'm going to really hard and hit the ball really far, and he's basically doing that every season, uh, but I don't think there's any question that, like, uh, most players have to adjust to the adjustments the opponents make to them, so, like, say Brian Dozier, right, like, this is a guy who came up, was kind of a slap-hitting utility infielder, figured out that he could become, like, a pretty good home run hitter if he just pulled the ball all the time, and then the league was like, oh, Brian Dozier only ever wants to pull the ball, and they started pitching him away, and Brian Dozier had to figure out how to pull the ball when pitched away. And so this is, these are like a series of back and forth that the league and Brian Dozier have had over the years. And Brian Dozier, I think, set the major league record for home runs in a season by second baseman this year. So he's clearly uh, managed to adjust. Uh, right. And I think last year in the second half, he was pretty terrible. There was concern that like maybe the pitchers have figured out Brian Dozier. And apparently Dozier figured out whatever they figured out and he figured out how to fix it. So. And, and I feel like Jeff Sullivan, I mean, has in part based his career off of tracking the changes that Mike Trout has made, right. for example. Yeah, like, oh, Mike Trout can't hit uh, high fastballs a month later. Oh, Mike Trout fixed that. And I think not just fix it, right? Like, at a certain point this season, maybe earlier this year, wasn't Mike Trout actually excelling on high fastballs? Right. Yeah, it's like Mike Trout, like, read the article and was like, oh, I have a flaw. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go change <laughs> that so I don't have that flaw anymore. <laughs> Can you think of any players who, um, you know, I mean, ideally, the example would be a player who was in the league for a while, um, but maybe younger players too, who they just were not able to adjust. I mean, maybe this is every single player, although some of them, you okay. know, it seems like it's a, just a deterioration of athleticism or hand-eye coordination or something along those lines. But someone who was good, and then once uh, the league as a whole adjusted, 
um, he was unable to make the adjustment to the adjustment. Um, maybe Josh Hamilton would be a decent example of that. Like Hamilton's probably the best example of a guy who just like had raw physical abilities. So even though he spent hardly any time in the minor leagues developing kind of polish because he, you know, was in um, rehab and then jail and various other places not doing baseball things, uh, he basically got to the big leagues just on his raw abilities and turned out to be a very good player based on the fact that he was strong and he had tremendous bat speed and he could um, hit almost anything and he won an MVP. And Josh Hamilton was basically at the, the, you know, the peak of baseball for a couple of years on his physical gifts. And then teams were like, why do we ever throw this guy strikes? And Josh Hamilton has never made the adjustment to stop swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. And now he's basically out of baseball. And so I think uh, that's probably the, the example that comes to my mind of like, this is just a, uh, a fairly easy uh, adjustment that the league made that Hamilton was never able to counter. Do, is that a question? Do you think, I mean, just w- with regard to Hamilton in particular, from what you've observed of him, is that is that the fact that he cannot necessarily tell the difference between a ball or a strike, or do you think in in some sense it's 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 sort of it's almost the curse of talent where he's become so accustomed to playing and succeeding one way for, I mean obviously he had interruptions, but when he was healthy and on the field, you know he was dominant, um, and then just not. Having never had the experience, like essentially before he was 30 years old, of having to adjust. Yeah, I mean, it's probably both, which is, I think, the answer to almost every question of two polar opposites. Uh, but uh-huh. I think what, what we generally know is that people who have succeeded in doing things a certain way are resistant to change, right? Like they generally think, oh, I just need to get back to what I was doing previously because what I was doing caused the results. And therefore, if I can do the same thing, the results will follow, not necessarily noticing that there are other variables in play and and they generally tend to kind of internalize all of their own success. It's like, I did this thing and the results followed and they don't necessarily um, give enough credit to the outside forces that also allow them to succeed. Uh, and so I think we know that that's just a general human flaw is that we over overstate our own importance on our success and or, or on our own results necessarily because we do it with failure as well. Um, but at the same time, I think it's probably fair to ask like, because Hamilton missed all that time in the minor leagues, does he just not have enough repetitions in order to be where a player of his age and kind of talent level uh, should be kind of uh, traditionally after thousands and thousands of at-bats and getting the C curveballs and C pitches out of the zone and C pitches coming out of a pitcher's hand is potentially it could just be that Josh Hamilton, his batting eye is under-trained for where his physical skills are. And so, you know, what we see generally is younger players don't have very good play discipline, and this is something that uh, develops as they get older, and it seems like this is uh, an experience-based skill. As like, the more pitches you see, the better you get at recognizing what's a ball and what's a strike. And then as your physical skills begin to deteriorate, you can kind of fall back on this development of experience, where maybe Hamilton, uh, because of his off-the-field issues, didn't have that experience to fall back on. So when his physical skills began to deteriorate, he was left with nothing. <laughs> it's a really stark, stark portrait, isn't it? Well, I mean, uh, I guess he was left with a whole lot of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's able, that's not so bad. It's like he's really rich. <clears throat> Weird, we started off this conversation discussing uh, the Boston-Cleveland game tonight. Uh, what's notable about that series, and it's certainly the, the first game of that series, is the way that Terry Francona deployed or utilized his bullpen 
right? Uh, yeah. We saw Andrew Miller, or you know, probably would you say top five reliever in baseball? Arguably top five reliever top, in baseball. Top three reliever in baseball. Top, okay, that's fair. Top three reliever yeah. in baseball. Uh, we saw him used in the fifth inning, and probably all the more notable because it came uh, very much on the heels of Buck Showalter. What just two days before, um, yeah. having uh, having failed to use Zach Britton, a, a, a not illegitimate candidate for the Cy Young Award. Um, no, he's an illegitimate candidate. Someone who's been someone who's been invoked in the Cy Young Award conversation, at the very sure. least, by people by people who want to give the award to the wrong guy. Right. Perhaps, perhaps the best pitcher in the Baltimore Orioles, certainly on a yeah. Okay, that's fair. I will okay. agree with that. All right. Yeah. Uh, failed to use him, you know, uh, uh, you know, even uh, in regulation and then extra innings. Um, we then we saw Andrew Miller appear very much in the middle of a game. Uh, August Fagerstrom. Uh, perhaps with undue enthusiasm, perhaps with the precise amount of enthusiasm needed for this uh, particular uh, episode, he uh, he he said that the revolution was televised in this particular case. It, do you think that the use by Francona of Miller and then, I guess, Allen, not so much with Allen in terms of when uh, he was used, but for how many pitches? So I think he and Miller were both both through about forty pitches, right? Yeah, almost exactly forty, I think. Yeah, um, uh, is that is is that? I guess is that the most sort of uh, is that the the, be, the best example of of um, you know a, a manager being aggressive with his bullpen in a game uh, in a playoff game? Uh, I mean, I think we've seen other examples in the past, but this is probably the most stark example of the first pitcher out of the bullpen is my best guy. So that's what we generally haven't seen. We've seen managers say, hey, it's the seventh inning, I'm going to my relief ace, uh, or the eighth inning, I'm going to Mariano Rivera, and that's been pretty common as the six-out save in the postseason. Uh, lots of guys have done that. But we, what we haven't really seen probably in 20 or 30 years is uh, the first guy I'm going to when my starter gets in trouble is my best reliever, and that's what Terry Francona did. And I think – that's an, a really interesting change and potentially something that I think we can see Francona do throughout the postseason. I don't think this was a one game thing. This was clearly the plan going in because at that, at the point that he took Trevor Bauer out, there were two outs and nobody on in the fifth inning. This wasn't like, oh, there's the bases loaded and I need to squelch a rally and I'm going to go get my relief ace in order to get out of this jam. It was, well, I was going to bring Miller in anyway and here comes a left-hander. I might as well just get him an extra lefty to face. And so um, this was clearly Francona's plan before the game. And I think probably what he's going to do throughout the postseason is, hey, if i got to go to my bullpen, I'm going to make sure I use Andrew Miller. Uh, and I'm going to use Miller for as long as I can and as, as often as I can. And then I'm going to use Cody Allen as much as I can and as often as I can. And I'm going to give as many innings as possible to those two guys uh, rather than, you know, Going to a you know middle reliever and hoping that they can keep the game close so they can go to Miller later. So I think that's probably the big change that we're starting to see is kind of an an understanding that um, you know high leverage innings can happen, especially in the postseason in the fourth, fifth, sixth inning. Right, and that's the thing because uh, uh, Neil Weinberg wrote a post about leverage index in the context of this move because as you mentioned, no one on, two outs. This is not a. This is not technically a, a high leverage situation, at least on a game basis. Although right. I think probably if you if you evaluate it in terms of um, what I think what's called championship leverage index, right. they're basically all important moments, right? 
Yeah, so I think like Sam Miller wrote what I thought was the best piece in response to Joe Walter not using Britain uh, over at ESPN, where he basically like walked through like ten chime ten times in the game that Joe Walter could have put Britain in. Um, and said, like, you know, yes or no. And one of the paragraphs or a couple of paragraphs in there, he talked about how basically in the postseason there's no such thing as a low leverage inning. And it's not entirely true because if you're up 10 to 1, like, some there are blowouts, right? Like, we've seen a couple of non-competitive games uh, this year. I think last year in one of the wild card games it was, like, 11 to nothing or something. So there are situations in which um, you can throw basically anybody out there and you're going to win the game anyway. But in a, you know, two, three, four, and certainly in a one-run game, um, there's no, there's really no such thing as a low leverage inning in the postseason because things can change so quickly. You go, you know, especially if you don't have anyone warming up the bullpen, you're just kind of like, oh, I trust my guy. And then like a single happens and a single happens and then someone hits a home run and all of a sudden it's a three run, you know, change in the score. And then you haven't even had time to warm any of that. That can happen in like four or five pitches. And so, um, I think in the postseason, the, the criteria for a low leverage outing almost has to be like a double digit lead for one team or the other. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask. You mentioned being up by a lot. What if you're? What if in a seven-game series, you know, like say early on in particular in the series, what if you're down ten to one? What's the proper strategy there in terms of using bullpen? Yeah, I mean, I think you do want to uh, expend your assets in the games that you have a chance to win. So if you're say it's the seventh inning and you're down by nine runs you have to understand your win probability is like less than 1%. So there's no real point like running your closer out that day if it means that you're not going to be able to use him, you know, an extended uh, extended opportunity or an appearance the next day. But if it's game seven of the World Series, who cares, right? Mm-hmm. Like as long, unless you're saving the guy for something uh, in, in an elimination game, you, if you're down, you're not saving him for anything because if you lose, your season is over. So I think like the Red Sox today, for instance, if they find themselves down big early, they should put David Price in the game or whoever they can in order to try and rally and win this game because if they lose, this, their season is over. So if you're not in a position where you say, okay, it's going to cost me something to put this guy in, then you should put him in. But if you have, you know, you're down by seven, eight runs late in the game and you're playing tomorrow, then you should probably not use your best relievers at that point. Is there any is there any argument if you're down by a lot for using a, a position player? As a pitcher, um, I mean, yeah, if you're down by like 15 or something, maybe, but I, like you would have to be down an awful lot uh, in the postseason to just punt, right? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen big comebacks, like you know, I think we've seen even 10 run comebacks in the regular season, so it's not impossible to happen. Like for you to just say, look, we're just giving up on this game entirely. This is what happens if you put a position player on the mound. You, it has to be like the ninth inning and you're down by 15 or something. It has to be like an insurmountable uh, comeback. You wrote today, uh, you wrote a piece today regarding a play from the Cubs game against another team, the Giants, for example. The Giants, definitely, for example. Uh, uh, Javier Baez, infielder for the Cubs, hit a ball to left field that I think he probably thought was a home run. Yeah, he pimped that one. Yeah, he did. (laughs) You need to, there needs to be. I think I think it's fine, especially if you and we've discussed this before. If you're celebrating, if you're celebrating the accomplishment, you feel like you're excited about it. That's fine, but you need there needs to be like a buffer, right? It's to be like if you think it's only going to be ten feet or less over the fence, right? Then you should probably then it's probably best to run. Um, yeah, I mean, I think on the ball by its head, I, I looked at the stat cast data and it looked like sixty five percent of those balls become home runs, which uh-huh. means if you're pitching that. 
one out of three times, you're going to look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. That's and, too too high of an idiot ratio in and, order to pimp a fly ball. And he actually had uh, injury added to uh, the insult uh, because yeah. he got he got whacked in the face. Is he is he okay, he's, actually, at this point? Yeah, yeah, he's fine. He just basically slid into a knee, which is not comfortable. It's not good for you. No, it's not good for you. Um, <clears throat> he slid into a knee. He also slid into an out uh, because his yeah. body came off – I don't know. Do we know what it is in seconds? Were you able to determine that? No, I didn't. I didn't get my uh, nano nano clock out. But it was he was off the base for a fraction of a second. Right, and and uh, certainly before instant replay, I don't think there would have been any question about about yeah. his being safe right. or he not. He was clearly right? safe before he came off the bag. Right, uh, and yet he was called out after instant replay. This reminds me now. You, you take issue with with this because you say this it's not really in the spirit of the rule, right? This reminds me of um, your concern and certainly certainly uh, general concern about uh, the about the transfer rule. Um, was this was this two years ago now, or was it even yeah. the beginning of last yeah. year? When they were not when they didn't know what to call a catch. Right. There was some question as to what to call it, something that had pretty much been established for, you know, and certainly all my lifetime. Uh, when attempting to to describe it in technical fashion, it uh, proved uh, proved to be difficult, uh, at least it was how it was, how it was um, applied. And uh, a lot of balls that appeared to be catches were uh, rendered not catches because of the the letter of the law. I, I, this bears some similarity, doesn't it? Because these guys, they're really they're they're safe except for the fact that uh, for for a split second, their uh, their bodies are coming off the bag. Yeah, I mean, I think that's we see something similar where it's like this has been an understood way of playing baseball for a hundred years or whatever. Is like you slide into the base if you get there before you're tagged. And you do not overslide the base. You do not obviously like lose contact with the bag because you slid poorly in such a manner that you weren't able to stay on the bag uh, when your body came to a stop. Then you were safe. But now that we have instant replay, we can go back and like check frame by frame of whether you were in contact with the base the entire point of the slide, which has never been how umpires have ever evaluated safe calls on tag plays at second or third base. It has never been the umpire standing there trying to figure out if at any point the runner came off the base while the glove was applied, slow motion frame by frame. This just isn't how baseball works. So now we have this technology, or hasn't hasn't how it's worked in the past anyway. So now we have this technology that allows us to determine, okay, did the runner have essentially maintained continuous control all the way through the slide? And I think the people who are for this rule and kind of responded in, to my article saying, like, yeah, it's the rule. It's how the rule has always been. Uh, if you're not touching the base and you're tagged, you're out. And it's true. This is how the rule is written. But the rule is not written when we had slow-mo instant replay. And I think if the question is, if we had to rewrite the rule today, knowing the technology we have available, what rule would we write? And I don't think we would write a rule that says, if you are reaching the base uh, at second or third, you must have to maintain contact with the bag for every nanosecond that you're sliding, knowing how physics of a human body colliding with an immovable object on the ground work. We don't make runners do this at first base. We don't make runners do this at home. The general understood principle is 
If the runner gets there first and beats the tag and he's not trying to advance to the next base, he's safe. And this is how it works at first base. You can run off into foul territory and they don't come tag you out because you overran the base. And at home plate, you can slide and touch the base and keep on going into the batter's box or behind the umpire or whatever, and you're still safe. Only at second and third uh, is this an issue because of potential advancement. But if a guy is sliding into the base, like Javier Baez is diving into Joe Panic's knee, there's no... It's obvious that he's not trying to advance to the next base. So if you're not trying to advance and you got there first, why are you out? When I was in Little League, uh, I ended up on third base. Uh, must have been by mistake. Um, uh, but I was so delirious from joy uh, that I had made it all the way to third base uh, uh, that <clears throat> I uh, absentmindedly uh, was, um, I think, fixing my stirrup. And uh, my left foot, which was on the bag, I lifted up kind of behind me in, or- in order to fix that stirrup. And while I was doing that, the third baseman who still had the ball, he tagged me out. Right. What would be your ruling of someone who, in this case, essentially absentmindedly leaves the bag? I think if you make a mistake like that, that's like uh, you you were safe and then you got up and you forgot to call timeout or something and you walked off the base – or um, you simply forgot that the ball was still in play, that's your fault. Like, you should be aware of the rules. Uh, You made a mental mistake. In the case of diving or sliding into the base, I think what we have is uh, an understanding of how physics works, right? Is like, if you throw your body at the base Mm -hmm. in such a way, um, running full speed, it, without breaking your arm. I mean, like, Javier Baez could have kept his arm planted into the ground, and it would have broken. Like, he lifted his <laughs> arm in order to not injure himself. When you have players of this um, physical stature hurtling themselves into an unmovable object, it is almost impossible for them to safely, 100% of the time, keep their limbs on the base just based on the way that physics work, right? So, like, some of the time they'll be able to, but not all the time, especially depending on where the player is. Like Javier Baez, his head was hitting Joe Panic's knee at the same time his arm was coming off the base. Do we expect that like we human beings should like lose their um, kind of defense mechanism? Because <laughs> like when I'm getting injured, I should not be able to like brace myself. Like uh, I think it's it's out of the realm of reason to say that we should expect someone to be able to kind of maintain control of the base 100% of the time, especially when they're colliding with the fielder. Right. Uh, last question, Cameron, uh, before you will have entirely fulfilled your obligation at the program. Um, <clears throat> uh, today we begin the uh, contract crowdsourcing, uh, the free agent contract crowdsourcing, which we've done what, every year the last four or five years, something like that. And in this first set of players, Ryan Howard appears. Ryan Howard, I think, what technically speaking, has a club option for $23 million. That will not be picked up. No, it probably will not be picked up. He, no, um, 100% will not he, be picked up. I would bet he, anything he, anyone wants to bet. He likely will not mind because he receives a $10 million um, buyout, yeah. buyout in, in any case. So that's also that's a pretty good salary for anyone. In any case, uh, he presents, um, I think there's something that, that's more than 0% interesting about his uh, free agency, which is that he has he has he still possesses a skill, which is the ability to hit the ball hard. Uh, do, do you feel as though he will have any suitors in free agency, or will he go the way of uh, you know like 
I mean, will he even have as much interest as Pedro Alvarez did this past season when he... Yeah, I mean, Alvarez got a major league deal for some millions of dollars. Howard will not get that. I think, think so. if Ryan Howard wants to play baseball next year, he will have to accept a minor league contract, a uh, non-roster invite to spring training with a team that would think about using him as like a backup DH. I mean, that's really Ryan Howard's role in baseball at this point is part-time pinch hitter off the bench. Uh, probably the closest analogy is something like the 40-year-old Ken Griffey Jr. a few years back, where uh, still like some name value and not not uh, impossible that he hits a home run every once in a while, so you could use him as a pinch hitter for your utility infielder or your backup catcher or something, but not a guy you want to put in your starting lineup on a regular basis. And because of the rise of the expanded bullpen, we have very short benches now, and so carrying a backup DH is very difficult. So I think... For Howard to have a job in Major League Baseball next year, he's going to have to come to camp with a team that has an American League team that says, look, we don't want to spend any money on a left-handed hitting DH platoon. We're willing to see if you're willing, if you're able to come in and, um, you know, hit a, hit a little bit, um, to where we can maybe say, okay, we're willing to carry you as a league minimum player or a million dollar player or whatever your, your Major League contract would be if we, if we choose to pick up your, uh, if we kind of select your option. Uh, during spring training, and then we'll give you a couple hundred at bats during the year, uh, and see if we can catch lightning in a bottle. Do you, um, <clears throat> do you think of the? So I think we're gonna we're gonna do ballots for fifty four players, fifty two or fifty four players. Do you think he will? Uh, do you think he will make the least money of anyone among those fifty four players? In, uh, yeah, I only I, I I would have told you to not include him, except for I guess like. You said you had curiosity about him, yeah. but like, yeah, he's anyone who projects that Ryan Howard is going to make real money this winter mm-hmm. doesn't know how Major League Baseball works anymore. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I was just curious. I yeah, I was curious. I am curious. That's what people say. Yeah, I mean they can say whatever they want, but Ryan Howard's not going to get it. I mean he's <laughs> a replacement level player, and he's been a replacement level player for five years. Do you think that? Do you think Eric Thames will make more money this this off season? Maybe. I I think there's some chance that Eric Thames uh, signs a major league contract, and, and I don't think Ryan Howard's going to get a major league contract. Eric Thames has been quite good in Korea. He has been. Yeah. I think he uh, he posted some really impressive numbers this year. I don't I don't know how to adjust for them. I'm sure. What, doesn't Clay Davenport usually have translations of some sort? He does, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll look at those. I bet uh, Jared Cross will produce some steamer. Steamer. Uh, I bet he will, too. Yeah. You did it, Dave Cameron. All right. You're done. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. Why don't you go do what you need to do? Okay. Because there's probably a baseball game on right now. There is, yeah. You can watch that. And it's uh, good. Okay. So I will say these things. I will say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. And I will say that has been managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. I am Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.